Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. March 25th. How are you doing, David? Here we go again, a discussion on an essay in, uh, in the uh, Foreign Affairs Journal. Yes, an essay written by the former Prime Minister of... Uh, Australia? Australia. Australia, Kevin mate. Rudd. Kevin Rudd. It's a very good one. It's very... Well, it's an essay... And so I, I, you know, I, I'm reading this. I don't know. I, I, this is not my area, and I could have a wrong take on things. But it, it seems like an op-ed. Is that what it is, David? Uh, it's an opinion. It's an essay, and uh, he says a lot of things that are very, very interesting uh, from his perspective, which is probably more of a Pacific perspective than North American perspective. But he looks at the world. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting article. I mean, a, a, interesting essay. Yes, and I, I mean, it's easy for other people to tell you how to use your power, but that's exactly what he does. Um, he's telling the Americans, and the Americans are in a unique position as being such a powerful nation that other people want them to project their power in a specific way. And sometimes that'll be for the good of the region or because they see that as the best strategic course of action if they were in the shoes of an American president or a you know an American government. But also, when... A uh, foreign leader says, this is what I think the Americans should do. It's important to keep in mind that where people stand depends on where they sit. And a lot of times the things they advocate would probably be good for Australia. Well, you know, funny you, funny you should say that, David, because when I was reading this, a lot of things went through my mind. And the one thing that went through my mind is where you stand depends on where you sit. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, I kept thinking that. And like if the prime minister of, of Germany or the prime minister of England or if they wrote the same thing, they would have a little bit different take on it. Yes. And so and so uh, I guess in reading these essays, I think it's very, very important to read all perspectives. And he does try to say, here's here's U.S. through China's eyes from an Australian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that is very, very interesting. But, you know, I, I am a strong advocate of listen, uh, listen to what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Listen to everyone, both sides, and try to understand why they think that way, what their motivation is. Uh, but, but what Kevin Rudd does, you know, you think of his perspective, but I think of what he's talking about, too. And uh, so everyone, when they all intelligent people, they'll have good things to say. But uh, you should always try to try to think about what they mean by what they say. And uh, that's what I started doing with this one. The second thing, I saw a lot of similarities. Uh, it's not the same, but there's similarities uh, between now with U.S. and China and uh, and the Cold War mm-hmm. back in the 70s and 80s uh, with Russia. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, uh, but uh, it, it's very different. It's a different world. Uh, and we're, we're sitting in a different place, right, David? Yeah. <laughs> And so our stand should not just be the same, but we should learn from history. Yes, and this is a longer essay, so we should probably get into it soon. But I'm going to switch to just myself real quick. And I'm going to try to call you back because I'm not getting your uh, smiling face on the screen where we read. So, okay.
Problem solved. There you go. Yep. You know, which is another thing. I, I want to put a plug in for you again. Uh, this is a podcast. This is a, a stream on YouTube. This is everything. And and I sit here and talk, but uh, David here does everything. He does he does everything. It's a one man show, and is to me. I don't know. Uh, to me, it's very impressive. Thanks, David. You're doing a great job. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'm learning a lot as well. It's it's fascinating. Just you know, I I always thought of OBS as my screen recorder, but really, you can run a full broadcast from OBS if you if you think about it beforehand and you plan all your assets and. And then I think we're using Skype as our video conferencing. We may, I mean, something may be better. I just haven't looked around. Mm-hmm. Speaking speaking of which, before we get into this, Microsoft is in talks to buy Discord, which is the gamer version of Skype. It's what all the kids on Twitch are using for $10 billion. So there's that. Um, but should we start reading? I'm ready. Okay, I'm going to try to read fast because this is a longer essay. It took me about 30 minutes to read. So uh-huh. if it takes me about 30 minutes to read out loud, we'll only have 30 minutes or so for a discussion. So let's get into it. Short okay. of War, How to Keep U.S.-Chinese Confrontation from Ending in Calamity by Kevin Rudd. Officials in Washington and Beijing don't agree on much these days, but there is one thing on which they see eye to eye. The contest between their two countries will enter a decisive phase in the 2020s. This will be the decade of living dangerously. No matter what strategies the two sides pursue or what events unfold, the tension between the United States and China will grow, and competition will intensify. It is inevitable. War, however, is not. It remains possible for the two countries to put in place guardrails that would prevent a catastrophe, a joint framework for what I call managed strategic competition, would reduce the risk of competition escalating into open conflict. The Chinese party is increasingly confident that by the decade's end, China's economy will finally surpass that of the United States as the world's largest in terms of GDP at market exchange rates. Western elites may dismiss the significance of that milestone. The CCP's Politburo does not. For China, size always matters. Taking the number one slot will turbocharge Beijing's confidence, assertiveness, and leverage in its dealings with Washington, and it will make China's central bank more likely to float the yuan, open its capital account, and challenge the U.S. dollar as the main global reserve currency. Meanwhile, China continues to advance on other fronts as well. A new policy plan announced last fall aims to allow China to dominate in all new technology domains, including artificial intelligence, by 2035. And Beijing now intends to complete its military modernization program by 2027, seven years ahead of the previous schedule. With the main goal of giving China a decisive edge in all conceivable scenarios for a conflict with the United States over Taiwan. A victory in such a conflict would allow President Xi Jinping to carry out a forced reunification with Taiwan before leaving power, an achievement that would put him on the same level within the CCP pantheon as Mao Zedong. Washington must decide how to respond to Beijing's assertive agenda, and quickly. If it were to opt for economic decoupling and open confrontation, every country in the world would be forced to take sides, and the risks of escalation would only grow. 
Among policymakers and experts, there is understandable skepticism as to whether Washington and Beijing can avoid such an outcome. Many doubt that U.S. and Chinese leaders can find their way to, do, to a framework to manage their diplomatic relations, military operations, and activities in chi cyberspace within agreed parameters that would maximize stability, avoid accidental escalation, and make room for both competitive and collaborative forces in the relationship. The two countries need to consider something akin to the procedures and mechanisms that the United States and the Soviet Union put into place to govern their relations after the Cuban Missile Crisis. But in this case, without first going through the near-death experience of a barely avoided war. Managed strategic competition would involve establishing certain hard limits on each other's country's security policies and conduct, but would allow for a full and open competition in the diplomatic, economic, and ideological realms. It would also make it possible for Washington and Beijing to cooperate in certain areas through bilateral arrangements and also multilateral forums. Although such a framework would be difficult to construct, Doing so is still possible, and the alternatives are likely to be catastrophic. There we go. That's the first part. Let's discuss. First, first section. Um, yeah. I, I don't see... It's, it's, he likes to draw the comparison to the Soviets in the Cold War, and I believe that he walks that back a bit later. The economic interconnectedness of the Chinese and U.S. markets can't be understated. The Chinese GDP would fall um, substantially if there was a decoupling. If the United States and the European Union combined, and Japan and South Korea, the other Asian democracies, said, you know what? Because of their authoritarian bent, we don't care about their productive capacity. And then there would be no export market for Chinese goods. So obviously, that interconnectedness didn't exist with the Soviets. We could decouple from them. And the dynamic of we're interconnected, we're extremely interconnected, never existed with the Soviets. Absolutely. Uh, the issue is the same. The conditions are very different. Uh, therefore, the solution, strategy, tactics are going to be extremely different. So even though from history, you know, uh, the uh, you've gone through the issues once, uh, but it can't be an analogy. Uh, I, I saw similarities. That's what I was saying. But uh, technology is different. Econ economics is different. China is very different than Russia. And so, uh, it, but he sets the stage here, right? Mm -hmm. he's, he's setting the stage for this is where we are. This is uh, going to be, uh, we're in a situation now that needs to be uh, examined and needs to be examined very carefully. Uh, because uh, after World War II, uh, well, a couple of decades after World War II, during the Cold War, uh, the U.S. was powerful, uh, but we were powerful and getting more powerful. Uh, but here, uh, as he says later, uh, the situation is different. Mm -hmm. The and landscape is different. The battlefield is different. And I do see, you know, the the flashpoint, the com the point of potential conflagration is Taiwan. That is where there will be potential military conflict, is whether or not China tries to assert its power and reclaim Taiwan. And during the Trump administration, what it saw is it could assert its power and reclaim Hong Kong. 
And that's exactly what it did. Now, if you look at these things that China's doing, that their plans, the potential points of conflagration, it's they're not as openly, there's not as much open animosity towards the U.S. It's, we've always wanted Taiwan back. We've wanted Taiwan back since 1945. We still want it back. And with Russia, I mean, Russia was interfering in our elections in 2016 and 2020. There's very little evidence that China was. I mean, I don't think that there's such overt uh, animosity and outlash against America by China. I think it's them pushing their own agenda. And we see that as aggressive. And they say, it's, it's not aggressive. It's what we've always stated that we wanted. And we're doing it. And you said we can't do it. But who are you to say we can't push our own agenda? Um, it's not about you. Because the Americans think that everything's always about them. And the Chinese, I mean, it's, they're saying it's about us. We want to repatriate Hong Kong. We want to repatriate Taiwan. And the Americans say, that's bad. Because we've given security guarantees to places that have strong democracies. But it's not about America. Their, their initiatives. I mean, it's in some ways, it's about let's make our economy the strongest economy in the world. And that's not an attack on America. That's America saying, well, we can't compete. We can't grow as fast as you guys. So you're being mean to us because we deserve to always be the, the biggest economy. That's, there's a difference between someone out competing you and someone fighting you to make you weaker. I, well, post post World War II, when you had the Cold War, uh, you know things were different then. Uh, and then uh, in the fifties and the sixties, uh, we had the Vietnam War, and the expansion of uh, into the Southeast Asia. Uh, and then uh, I'm I'm sure uh, I don't know for sure, but uh, uh, how can I say that? Uh, I, I I hypothesize the possibility exists. <laughs> I want to be very careful that, uh, uh, well, expansion into Hong Kong, which they are doing, uh, repatriating uh, Taiwan, uh, what does it stop? You know, once they start, uh, they will uh, have an imperialized type uh, repatriation uh, strategy and their tactics uh, will could change very quickly because of the, the type of country they are, kind of type of government they have. And the, the uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party can do whatever they want uh, within this type of regime. And uh, where does it stop? Uh, are, is, is Japan at risk in 2020, in 2050, uh, in 2040? Is uh, South Korea at risk? And where does it stop? Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that they're looking at uh, stability. And, uh, and I think uh, uh, Kevin Rudd goes on uh, in the rest of this, which we'll get to, uh, where he talks about, we have to think about those things. Mm -hmm. Those things are very important about where we are going and what's laying the stage for momentum. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that this first this first section here, uh, he paints a picture. And I'm thinking, when I read it, I thought, oh, well, this picture is painted by uh, an Australian who knows political the, the international uh, uh, theater? Mm -hmm. He's in it. He's been doing it, uh, and that picture would be painted if it was, was for someone else. And it'd be nice if we had this kind of picture that's painted for us by different people to know different people's perspectives. Uh, 
because their perspectives is a basis for the values, which is a basis for their strategy, which is on how you put together tactics to everyone move in the same direction. Mm -hmm. so, so it's a good article. So shall we continue? Yep, let's go to the next one. Beijing's Long View. In the United States, few have paid much attention to the domestic, political, and economic drivers of Chinese grand strategy. The content of that strategy, or the ways in which China has been operationalizing it in recent decades. The conversation in Washington has been all about what the United States ought to do, without much reflection on whether any given course of action might result in real changes to China's strategic course. A prime example of this type of foreign policy myopia was an address that then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo delivered last July, in which he effectively called for the overthrow of the CCP. We, the freedom-loving nations of the world, must induce China to change, he declared, including by empowering the Chinese people. The only thing that could lead Chinese people to rise up against the party state, however, is their own frustration with the CCP's poor performance on addressing unemployment, its radical mismanagement of a natural disaster, such as a pandemic, or its massive extension of what is already intense political repression. Outside encouragement of such discontent, especially from the United States, is unlikely to help and quite likely to hinder change. Besides U.S. allies, besides, U.S. allies would never support such an approach. Re regime change has not exactly been a winning strategy in recent decades. Finally, bombastic statements such as Pompeo's are utterly counterproductive because they strengthen Xi's hand at home, allowing him to point to the threat of foreign subversion to justify ever tighter domestic security measures, thereby making it easier for him to rally disgruntled CCP elites in solidarity against an external threat. That last factor is particularly important for Xi, because one of his main goals is to remain in power until 2035, by which time he will be 82, at the age at which Mao passed away. Xi's determination to do so is reflected in the party's abolition of term limits, its recent announcement of an economic plan that extends all the way to 2035, and the fact that Xi has not even hinted at who might succeed him, even though only two years remain in his official term. She experienced some difficulty in the early part of 2020, owing to a slowing economy and the COVID-19 pandemic, whose Chinese origins put the CCP on the defensive. But by the year's end, official Chinese media were hailing him as the party's new great navigator and helmsman, who had prevailed in a heroic people's war against the novel coronavirus. Indeed, Xi's standing has been aided greatly by the shambolic management of pandemic in the United States and a number of other Western countries, which the CCP has highlighted as evidence of the inherent superiority of the Chinese authoritarian system. And just in case any ambitious party officials harbor thoughts about an alternative candidate to lead the party after Xi's term is supposed to end in 2022, Xi recently launched a major purge, a rectification campaign, as the CCP calls it, of members deemed insufficiently loyal. Yikes. Yeah. Meanwhile... <laughs> Meanwhile, Xi has carried out a massive crackdown on China's Uyghur minority in the region of Xinjiang, launched campaigns of repression in Hong Kong, Inner Mongolia, and Tibet, and stifled dissent among intellectuals, lawyers, artists, and religious organizations across China. Xi has come to believe that China should no longer fear any sanctions that the United States might impose on his country or an individual Chinese. 
officials or on individual Chinese officials in response to violations of human rights. In his view, China's economy is now strong enough to weather such sanctions, and the party can protect officials from any fallout as well. Furthermore, unilateral U.S. sanctions are unlikely to be adopted by other countries for fear of Chinese retaliation. Nonetheless, the CCP remains sensitive to the damage that can be done to China's global brand by continuing revelations about its treatment of minorities. That is why Beijing has become more active in international forums, including the UN Human Rights Council, where it has rallied support for its campaign to push back against long-established universal norms on human rights, while also regularly attacking the United States for its own alleged abuses of those very norms. She is also intent on achieving Chinese self-sufficiency to head off any effort by Washington to decouple the United States economy from that of China, or to use U.S. control of the global financial system to block China's rise. This push lies at the heart of what she describes as China's dual circulation economy, its shift away from export dependency and toward domestic consumption as the long-term driver of economic growth, and its plan to rely on the gravitational pull of the world's biggest consumer market to attract foreign investors and suppliers to China on Beijing's term. She also realized uh, recently announced a new strategy for technology, research and development, and manufacturing to reduce China's dependence on imports of certain core technologies, such as semiconductors. The trouble with this approach is that it prioritizes party control and state-owned enterprises over China's hardworking, innovative, and entrepreneurial private sector, which has been primarily responsible for the country's remarkable economic success over the last two decades. In order to deal with a perceived external economic threat from Washington and an internal political threat from private entrepreneurs whose long-term influence threatens the power of the CCP, she faces a dilemma familiar to all authoritarian regimes. How to tighten central policy control without extinguishing business confidence and dynamism. She faces a similar dilemma when it comes to what is perhaps his paramount goal, securing control over Taiwan. She appears to have concluded that China and Taiwan are now further away from peaceful reunification than at any time in the past 70 years. This is probably correct, but China often ignores its own role in, the widening, in widening the gulf. Many of those who believe that China would gradually liberalize its political system as it opened up its economic system and become more connected with the rest of the world also hope that the process would eventually allow Taiwan to become more comfortable with some form of reunification. Instead, China has become more authoritarian under Xi, and the promise of reunification under a one-country, two-systems formula has evaporated as the Taiwanese look to Hong Kong, where China has imposed a harsh new national security law, arrested opposition politicians, and resi resisted media freedom. With peaceful reunification off the table, Xi's strategy is now clear to vastly increase the level of military power that China can exert in the Taiwan Strait, and to the extent that the United States would become unwilling to fight a battle that Washington itself judged it would probably lose, without U.S. backing, she believes, Taiwan would either capitulate or fight on its own and lose. This approach, however, radically underestimates three factors. The difficulty of occupying an island that's the size of the Netherlands, has the terrain of Norway and boasts a well-armed population of 25 million, the irreparable damage to China's international political legitimacy that would arise from such a brutal use of military force, and the deep unpredictability of U.S. domestic politics, which would determine the nature of the U.S. response if and when such a crisis arose. 
Beijing, in projecting its own deep strategic realism onto Washington, has concluded that the United States would never fight a war it could not win, because to do so would be terminal for the future of American power, prestige, and global standing. What China does not include in its calculus is the reverse possibility, that the failure to fight for a fellow democracy that the United States has supported for the entire post-war period would also be catastrophic for Washington particularly in terms of the perception of U.S. allies in Asia, who might conclude that the American security guarantees that they have long relied on are worthless, and then seek their own arrangements with China. As for China's maritime and territorial claims in the East China and South China Seas, Xi will not concede an inch. Beijing will continue to sustain pressure on its Southeast Asian neighbors in the South China Sea, actively contesting freedom of navigation operations, probing for any weakening of individual or collective resolve, but stopping short of a provocation that might trigger a direct military confrontation with Washington. Because at this stage, China is not fully confident it would win. In the meantime, Beijing will seek to cast itself in as reasonable a light as possible in its ongoing negotiations with Southeast Asian claimant states on the joint use of energy resources and fisheries in the South China Sea. Here, as elsewhere, China will fully deploy its economic leverage in the hope of securing the region's neutrality in the event of a military incident or crisis involving the United States or its allies. In the East China Sea, China will continue to increase its military pressure on Japan around the dispute disputed Diao Senkaku Islands. But in Southeast Asia, here too, Beijing is unlikely to risk an armed conflict, particularly given the unequivocal nature of the U.S. security guarantee to Japan. Any risk, however small, of China losing such a conflict would be politically unsustainable in Beijing and have massive domestic political consequences for Xi. That was a mouthful. But... There was a lot of good stuff in there, I think. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. He covered a lot of things. Uh, a lot of things. Um, okay, so it's scary. Because by 2035, Xi Jinping, leader of China, wants Taiwan. That's what this guy's saying. Mm-hmm. And they're working on increasing their military capacity, so... That on a hard power level, they could take it and there's nothing the U.S. can do about it. And if the U.S. were to say, we're going to try to enforce our security guarantee and assist Taiwan, there would be a bloody conflict that the United States can't win. But they want to avoid that. They don't want, they really don't want that to happen. Uh, But because they know that the United States wouldn't enter into a war like that or try to avoid it. They're using that uh, to try to uh, uh, play both sides against the middle with uh, being a more uh, the uh, at-home policies like with Hong Kong, but also uh, they're moving into Hong Kong because of uh, their expansion. And uh, But then Taiwan, they want to use it, but they want... Uh, they want to move into it very, very cautiously uh, to try to avoid conflict. Uh, so they're trying to they're trying to do both. And it's, it, it's very interesting. The fascinating thing was the pandemic, I think, and the trade war that Trump started unilaterally. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the trade war allowed, not more than the pandemic, Trump to look the other way when China said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take this united, democratic, special administration region to our south, and we're just going to take it over. And the United States said, well, if, if you can get soybean farmers in Iowa to reelect me, I'll let you destroy a democracy in Southeast Asia. Basically, that was the bargain that was made in January of 2020. And then Trump comes and says, we made the greatest deal. Everyone's going to be so happy. It's like, well, not people in Hong Kong. They're not going to be happy. Um, and it's scary because, like I said, China's not like Russia. China's not uh, overt actions to try to subvert U.S. democracy. But if we elect a buffoon, China will certainly use it to their strategic advantage. Um, and that's exactly what they did in taking over Hong Kong. And once, we, like we've seen with Russia annexing the Crimea, once and that was under Obama. Once the cat's out of the bag, it's hard to to put the toothpaste back in the the tube. You know, it's hard to put the cat back in the bag. It's once you have Hong Kong, you have it. It's difficult to wrestle back democracy there. That's right. That's right. But Russia in Eastern Europe is very different than China in the Asian continent uh, because of the surrounding nations. Uh, and uh, you have uh, interest in Europe with Russia is very different than the interest of the uh, Pacific Rim countries uh, with China. Uh, there's different economics, there's different uh, social, different culture, uh, and also different history. Mm-hmm. So it's it, there's it's the same issue, but it's a very, very different uh, strategy and tactics to move forward. Also, you know, Russia annexing the Crimea, that's, um, of course, if you're a Ukrainian and you're a pro-Ukrainian Ukrainian, not a pro-Russian Ukrainian, that's horrible. Um, but I don't think the global strategic consequences of that move, it's not like dominoes falling. Russia annexes the Crimea, and before you know it, they take Austria and Poland. And I mean, and there's a new sphere of influence. Russia doesn't have that power. Now, if China can annex Taiwan, if they can control the East Chinese Sea with those disputed islands that Japan thinks are theirs and China thinks are theirs, and start undermining U.S. security guarantees, and Japan starts to say, listen, we're pragmatic people. We have this hulking behemoth on our west, and the U.S. security guarantees don't really appear to mean much. This is what this guy is saying, Rudd. He's saying, what's to keep Japan from saying, let's just strike a deal with China before it's too late. Let's sort of have a mutual security guarantee with China sort of shift our focus away from intercooperation economically, diplomatically, militarily with the U.S. and just switch that focus with China. And sort mm-hmm. of, and, and that's not disloyalty towards the years of, you know, alliance between the U.S. And, and Japan. That's just cold, calculated, real politic. It's like the time has come to switch alliances. And you can't blame nations when they do that, when they've, when they're making decisions based on hard power, it's there's a very logical reason for it. It's survivability. Mm-hmm. It's to survive. 
It's like like in uh, like the history. Look at history. I mean, you can stand up for your principles, but you'll lose if mm -hmm. the power is against it. Like like in Greece, like in uh, Milos. Uh, yeah, Milos, the Milos story. So you have uh, uh, foreign affairs, international politics is uh, is is a different is a different kind of uh, strategy and in, in thinking and and uh, planning. Mm -hmm. you, you have to think of the forces. What forces are are, are there? But this this section here really said here's how uh, how China views uh, their strategy uh, and their tactics. Uh, and I think the next section is going to talking about how they see, how she sees uh, America. Yes, and the first section was good because he lays it out immediately, and I think this is a problem a lot of Americans have. We only think about what we can do. We don't think about what China's strategy is. And that's sort of what I was saying, like, you know, taking back Hong Kong. Hong Kong was part of, you know, China until Western traders came in with opium and won the opium wars and sort of took Hong Kong as a port. You know, Taiwan, that's more stemming from the revolution um, where the imperial China fell and Mao Zedong rose to power and, and mainland China and Chiang Kai-shek rose to power in Taiwan. Um, and from that period in the middle of the century, the mainland China has always felt like Taiwan and mainland China were, were one. Uh, Taiwan never saw it that way. So, so there's just a difference of opinions, right? But, oh, there's a historical, oops, I, I screwed up. I had my guitar plugged in. It's going to be a little bit of noise on the broadcast up until the 34-minute mark because my guitar was plugged in. Um, bummer. But what was I, what was I saying? <laughs> that it's, it's, uh, it's very different very different now yes so uh, oh but China has had a strategy and that strategy if you go back and look at the rich long Chinese history and you look at what led to the fall of the you know the, the opium wars and the fall of Imperial China and the rise of Mao and the Great Leap Forward the Cultural Revolution the the whites leaving to Taiwan you can sort of piece together their strategy and sort of see they're not acting on impulse. They're not some unknown enemy to the United States. They're a nation and a people that have been around longer than the United States that are following an arc of history. And it is predictable if you take the time to think about where they're coming from. And a lot of times we don't. We say, oh man, they're, they're becoming a bigger economy than us. Oh, they're building up their military capacity. Oh, they're competing in computing and artificial intelligence and quantum computing. And, and oh no, they're controlling the world supply of rare earth minerals. They're the bad guy. Why do they hate us so much? And it's like, they don't hate us. They're following their own arc of history. <laughs> it's, it's not animosity. It's, you know, if you go to work and you, you buy a house and you have a nice yard and your neighbor's sitting there and his house is falling apart and his yard is messed up and he's looking out the window saying, he's mowing his lawn again. Why does he hate me so much? You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that sometimes when people try to better themselves, it's not an act of animosity towards someone else.
I mean, it's just, I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, to me, in my mind, what, what you're saying is that uh, when nations deal with themselves and other nations, it's not like people dealing with people. Yeah. You know, you can't take it personally. You can't take it personally in foreign affairs. You can't take it personally in business. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be actors are going to act in their own benefit uh, for, for, for their own benefit. And so you should think you should uh, like this next next one, America through she's eyes. How do they see things? What does she think, think that we want? What is right? Uh, what does she think that we're going to do what we want? Uh, how are we going to act to hit what he's doing? And so, you know, well, well what does he see? Mm -hmm. And then and then uh, when we look at that, then what do we want? And then when you start seeing that the difference is there, but is there some common ground? Yeah, I like I'm have you you've never seen the show Mad Men, have you? I don't think so. No, the main character is an advertising executive named Don Draper. And whenever people will come to him complaining, they got a problem. They're mad. They're upset. They're emotional. He always asks, well, what do you want? It's like, I know you're mad, but what do you want? Like, can I do something to give you something that makes you not mad? And what is that thing? Let's move on with it. Let's get to that point. Let's boil this down to what you want. And then we can start sort of moving forward. Or we can sit here and you can be mad for forever because you're not getting what you want. So I'm trying to figure out what you want so I can give it to you because he's an ad man, you know, and that's what he does. Figure out what people want, give it to them, they'll be happy. And uh, there's something to that in all facets of life. It is. There is. And sometimes it requires, before you ask the question, what do you want? Sometimes it requires them to air their their grievances. Mm -hmm. Like, bum, 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 air their grievances. They get it out. Okay, now, let's don't stay there. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. What do you want? How do you move forward? And... Uh, and I think what we're getting, what we're going to get into this article, is uh, Kevin Rudd. He he starts talking about, uh, well, uh, did we really know what we wanted in the Trump administration? Yeah. Did did we really know, or were we just just reacting, uh, shooting from the hip, bam, bam, bam? Well, I think also you know, made, we went, made things worse. When we went to China in two thousand six, mm -hmm. throughout the Bush, Clinton. And Obama administrations. So for, what's that, 16, um, 24 years? 24 years. Let's say 24 years. We did have this strategy. And that strategy was by opening everything to China, opening markets, it would undermine their authoritarian form of government. As capitalism sort of came to be accepted in China, communism, and it's communism in name only, it's authoritarianism, the people would reject it, and we would see a sort of a revolution on from the political perspective in China by virtue of opening up their markets. And that didn't happen. So we did have a strategy. It just didn't pan out the way we thought it would. Um, so sometimes... Or, or, or we didn't carry it through uh, because that's the other thing I noticed that 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 uh, that we have because we're so powerful because the United States is so powerful and every four years the leadership can change that's not how other countries work yeah you know and when the most powerful can change 
uh, that's like, oh, no, uh, what's your long-term strategy? But the long-term strategy was open up markets, sort of expose the Chinese to capitalism, to liberal like democracies. As Chinese people worked in business with these countries, they would see the benefit of the institutions. And that's not how it panned out. There was no revolution. There was 1989, and it was violently repressed. And maybe we should have done something about it then. But instead, it was like, well, yeah, they may have just sort of violently repressed uh, uprising in Tiananmen Square. But you know what we're going to do? Not punish them at all. Continue to open our markets. Give them all the advantage of economic cooperation without any mandates. Because we believe, and this was the dominant foreign policy thought at the time, by virtue of opening the markets, by exposing China to the West, China would change. And all they did was, yeah, we'll change. We'll take all the good things, but not change any of the stuff you want us to change, you know? That's right. So they, they had both. Yes. Okay. Should we continue? Yep. America through Xi's eyes. Underneath all these strategic choices lies Xi's belief, reflected in official Chinese pronouncements and CCP literature, that the United States is experiencing a steady, irreversible structural decline. This belief is now grounded in a considerable body of evidence. A divided U.S. government failed to craft a national strategy for long-term investment in infrastructure, education, and basic scientific and technological research. The Trump administration damaged U.S. alliances, abandoned trade liberalism, withdrew the United States from its leadership of the post-war international order, and crippled U.S. diplomatic capacity. The Republican Party has been hijacked by the far right, and the American political class and electorate are so deeply polarized that it will prove difficult for any president to win support for a long-term bipartisan strategy on China. Oops. Washington, she believes, is highly unlikely to recover its credibility and confidence as a regional and global leader, and he is betting that, as the next decade progresses, other world leaders will come to share this view and begin to adjust their strategic postures accordingly, gradually shifting from balancing with Washington against Beijing to hedging between the two powers to bandwagoning with China. But China worries about the possibility of Washington lashing out at Beijing in the year before U.S. power finally dissipates. Xi's concern is not just a potential military conflict, but also any rapid and radical economic decoupling. Moreover, the CCP's diplomatic establishment fears that the Biden administration, realizing that the United States will soon be unable to match Chinese power on its own, might form an effective coalition of countries across the democratic capitalist world with the express aim of counterbalancing China collectively. In particular, CP, CCP leaders fear that President Joe Biden's proposal proposal to hold a summit of the world's major democracies represents a first step on this path, which is why China acted rapidly to secure new trade and investment agreements in Asia and Europe before the new administration came into office. Mindful of this combination of near-term risks and China's long-term strengths, Xi's general diplomatic strategy toward the Biden administration will be to de-escalate immediate tensions, stabilize the bilateral relationship as early as possible, and do everything possible to prevent security crises. To this end, Beijing will look to fully reopen the lines of high-level military communication with Washington that were largely cut off during the Trump administration. She might seek to convene a regular, high-level political dialogue as well. Although Washington will not be interested in reestablishing the U.S.-China strategic and economic dialogue, which served as the main channel between the two countries until its collapse amid the trade war of 2018-19. 
Finally, Beijing may moderate its military activity in the immediate period ahead in areas where the People's Liberation Army rubs up directly against U.S. forces, particularly in the South China Sea and around Taiwan. Assuming that the Biden administration discontinues the high-level political visits to Taipei that became a defining feature of the final year of the Trump administration. For Beijing, however, these are changes in tactics, not strategy. As Xi tries to ratchet down tensions in the near term, he will have to decide whether to continue pursuing his hardline strategy against Australia, Canada, and India, which are friends or allies of the United States. This has involved a combination of a deep diplomatic freeze and economic coercion, and, in the case of India, direct military confrontation. She will wait for any clear signal from Washington that part of the price for stabilizing the U.S.-Chinese relationship would be an end to such coercive measures against U.S. partners. If no such signal is forthcoming, there was none under President Donald Trump, then Beijing will resume business as usual. Meanwhile, she will sink to work with Biden on climate change, she understands that this is in China's interest because of the country's increasing vulnerability to extreme weather events. He also realizes that Biden has an opportunity to gain international prestige if Beijing cooperates with Washington on climate change. Given the weight of Biden's own climate commitments, and he knows that Biden will want to be able to demonstrate that his engagement with Beijing led to reductions in Chinese carbon emissions, as China sees it, these factors will deliver Xi some leverage in his overall dealings with Biden. And she hopes that greater collaboration on climate will help stabilize the U.S.-Chinese relationship more generally. Adjustments in Chinese policy along these lines, however, are still likely to be tactical rather than strategic. Indeed, there has been remarkable continuity in Chinese strategy towards the United States since she came to power in 2013, and Beijing has been surprised by the relatively limited degree to which Washington has pushed back, at least until recently. Xi, driven by a sense of Marxist-Leninist determinism, also believes that history is on his side. As Mao was before him, she has become a formidable strategic competitor for the United States. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, it's fascinating to sort of look at, this could be his strategy. He sees climate change as an opportunity. And working together on climate change is an opportunity to gain leverage on Biden to get concessions from the U.S. to sort of continue there, you know, to sort of open up the playing field for Chinese initiatives. And, I mean, I, it's, it's fascinating when you look into politics, and it's one thing to watch Fox News. It's another thing to read Foreign Affairs. But it's always so cynical. Like, the only reason China will work with America on climate change is because they think they'll score points. And it's like, well, why don't they work together because they're the two most powerful countries in the world and this is a serious issue, <laughs> you know? No one ever says that. Well, I think it's fascinating. And it's um, uh, to me, it's important that he keeps uh, talking about strategy versus tactics, strategy versus tactics. He says, yeah, you could have these tactics, but it does not going to change the strategy. Mm -hmm. Even if the tactics seem counterproductive to the strategy, they'll do that short term. That's like politics. Yeah. Uh, like in politics, they'll say, oh, yeah, this person is great. And then something happens. This person is horrible. They'll, they'll change very quickly. We have a lot of examples of that, even in our in our political system. Mm -hmm. But so uh, international politics is the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, just because she is going to do something now, like, say, climate change or something, 
it's going to say it's into their best interest. Well, they'll even do something that's not in their best interest short term for long term benefit because they have more of a long term strategy than, than the United States. Because mm-hmm. whoever is the president four years, they may not be there the next four years. Uh, but uh, but China has a, uh, also China has a long term strategy that's not necessarily and their their uh, internal system of, of economy and politics and and human rights is very different than ours. Mm-hmm. And so they can do things we cannot. Uh, and so th- and also they have embraced a lot of the the uh, free trade over the years. That's why they become strong. But the idea is, is that they think differently than we do. Uh, and so it, just because they do something, don't interpret that as something as if we would have done that uh, because they have their own agenda. They have their own strategy. I mean, yeah, they do have their own strategy. I I'm kind of feel like in some way they don't think differently than we do. I think that we engage in tactics all the time that allow foreign leaders to go back and say, the Americans are doing this for us. And really it's a lead loss tactic where it's like, we want to extend our strategy. So we'll do this so that the local political leader can have a win. And then we use that later on to our advantage. And and China is just realizing, not realizing, sort of exercising the power that they have come into over the last 20 years. It's like, oh, we have the ability to do stuff now. We have the ability to push agendas that we would have been punished for by the U.S. because their ability to unilaterally punish us with sanctions isn't what it used to be. So before, we couldn't do that because if they unilaterally punished us with sanctions, we would come out a net loser. Now we can weather those sanctions and by pushing our agenda that way, we actually come out a net winner. So like the playing field has changed. And I mm-hmm. think that Trump was a very good foil because it's like, I'm going to declare a trade war against you. And then they say, okay, well, we're going to stop buying soybeans and all of your voters in the Midwest that produce soybeans are going to go bankrupt. And then they complain to him and he says, okay, well, first thing we're going to do is we're going to have the government write you checks, subsidy checks, because there's nothing more conservative than giving people money for not working. <laughs> and then <That's> sarcasm. <laughs> and then I'm going to go over to China and she is going to say, oh, yeah, we'll buy $300 billion if, you know, in, in soybeans. And I'm going to come back and say, she is great. We solved this trade war thing. He's got this coronavirus thing under control. And then when I don't do anything to get the coronavirus under control and it spirals out of control here, I'll blame it on she. So, I mean, I think that the buying $300 billion in soybeans... That's a tactic. It's not a strategy. It's not, oh, I want strong relations with the U.S. agricultural sector. It's, I can play this political leader like a fiddle by sort of allowing him to go back home and say, she's going to buy $300 billion of soybeans. And they made a bunch of other promises in that first round um, that they didn't fulfill, China. And so, you know, Trump comes home and he says, you know, look what I did. I'm the greatest. And none of those things come to pass. None of those benefits come trickle down to the American people. But China gets Trump off their back. And then the pandemic hits. And China can say, well, which system is better? The system that allows half a million people to die? Or our system? And so they do have a, an argument for global leadership. Like, they're out of control. Who should be the leader? Well, David, you're right. I totally agree with you. Uh, I think I said it wrong. 
uh, I didn't. Well, I didn't say it wrong. I didn't. I meant something different than what I said. Uh, and, and you corrected me. And you're right. Uh, it's not that that we don't know how they think is that we don't think about how they think. Yes. In other words, they're doing the same thing we're doing. And we say, oh, look, we did this. It's very myopic. Like, oh, see, uh, they just look at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't uh, realize that China's going to be doing the same thing we're doing. And don't think they won't. They will. Uh, but also, they have a different uh, system than we do. And so they can do things we can't do. Uh, but they're going to think the same way. If yeah. we had their system, we'd probably be doing the same things. Mm-hmm. And so in negotiations and in foreign policy and foreign affairs, you have to think, well, how do the other, how, do, how does the other person think? And, and what, how do they think? But also, how are they going to we how, how they're going to be how they're going to act with the position that they're in? In other words, people are going to smart people are going to act. A very predictable, a predictable way, uh, because they're going to survive, mm-hmm. and uh, so are we. And so you have to understand that on both sides. And I think a lot of times, if if our policy does not understand that, then we will be played like a fiddle, mm-hmm. like Trump. Yeah, like Trump. Trump was played, and it was going to be to their benefit. And you can't. Uh, you could say someone could argue. Well, you can't blame them. Would probably do the same thing if we had that situation, and uh, so the thing of it is, is that uh, we have to have a much uh, more uh, enlightened uh, foreign policy, mm-hmm. and I think hopefully we're going to start moving in that direction, because under the new management, uh, under Biden, uh, hopefully we're going to start saying things a little bit differently. Again, that's that's the um, ingredient in foreign affairs. Uh, in uh, that's that's different. We are a powerful nation, and every four years it can change. Mm-hmm. And looking at the article, just you know, you said you alluded to it under new management, Chinese leadership would have preferred to see seen Trump's reelection last year. Um, now I think that's somewhat true because I believe that Trump was more manageable by them, more manipulable because of his narcissism and his mm-hmm. desire to sort of have big t- like going to meet with she, uh Kim Jong Un that was pure narcissism that wasn't really policy like and you know they're firing missiles again ballistic missiles North Korea and mm-hmm. they asked Joe Biden you know do you think this is going to affect the diplomatic relations with North Korea and Joe Biden's response was what diplomatic relations you know yeah, Trump went and met with him, but there was no agreement struck. No progress was made. It was just, you know, it was window dressing. It wasn't real. Uh, so, no, it's not going to affect that. Um, <laughs> but I will say, though, you know, Mike Pompeo is saying something dumb like, I think the Chinese people should rise up against the Chinese government. That's pretty irresponsible for an American leader to say. And it's also saying, I don't think that we have the hard power or soft power to manage the situation anymore. So we're hoping for an act of God from the Chinese people. That's kind of what he's alluding to when a Secretary of State says that, right? Um, uh, that's, one, that's one take on it, yeah. One, so, yes, because Biden's probably a more competent manager or he'll have more competent people around him or he's not gutting the diplomatic services, you know, international trade people, he's sort of restoring 
a lot of professionals to positions where professionals belong, where important decisions are being made. China doesn't want to see him back. But on the other side of the coin, Trump did seem averse to the use of military force. And yet, if backed into a corner, who knows what military choices a Trump administration might have chosen if his feet were held to the fire. Um, I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? He might have made a more absolutely. rash decision than a Biden administration. Well, absolutely. There's only It was only four years. So the idea, he came in and overtook a system. Uh, uh, policies are in place. Uh, agreements are in place. Uh, trade agreements are in place. So he had that system. So over four years, things began to be unraveled. Uh, and so after four years, we were at this place. What would have happened another four years? Where would it have been? Mm-hmm. And uh, what, how many other things would we have lost? And uh, how weak would, how weaker would we have been in the international community? Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? And so, so hopefully it'll, it'll, uh, it will not continue in a negative direction. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest harm isn't really his dismantling of the diplomatic corps or, you know, global trade. I think it's that people realize that a lot of United States commitments are tenuous and that it can change with an election. So, oh, President Biden's promising us this, but in 2024, there's an election. And those promises might just be good for the next 26 months. And then who knows what can happen? Just showing the power of one person to change so much will undermine confidence in U.S. leadership. That's, I think, the real lasting effect. Yeah, I, I saw that here, too, in this article, in this essay. And I thought, well, is that good or is that bad? Or under what conditions is that good? Under what conditions is that bad? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're trying to create a long-term strategy, that's bad. But if you're trying to mitigate uh, reactions to negative policies or policies that don't work that well and... and uh, uh, I, I was thinking any, anything you do, uh, especially in the real world, is, is going to change. Uh, you never do anything perfect every time. You will never do everything perfect every time. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a good statement, David. So when you try something that doesn't work, you want to change. Well, sometimes those four years uh, is saying, we've tried this and let's keep this because it's right, but this, let's change this. And so we have... Uh, a a uh, milestone uh, stage gate to say yes. Now let's shift and correct these other things mm-hmm. uh, that's wrong. So uh, I thought of that as well. There's probably good and bad. Uh, we just have to manage both of them and keep the long-term strategy. Uh, but also, since we have a new new uh, administration, see if we can right some of the wrongs, mm-hmm. uh, but keep some of the good ones. Uh, so. Uh, very interesting. I think uh, the lessons, personal lessons to me, is that uh, never be averse to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, always be changing, but don't let go of your long-term strategy. <laughs> yeah, until it's proven ineffective. Like I said, until it's proven ineffective. Yeah, and then you should change. It's right. And You're I think that right. that was a lot of Trump's argument. Like, we've opened up our markets to China. We've allowed them to participate. And the strategy was, by opening up, they'll change. And he says, we opened up, and they didn't change. 
So we need to close it down. And there's some logic to that. Um, but when you sort of combine that with, I'm going to fire everyone who knows anything about international politics. I'm going to fire anyone who knows anything about international economics. I'm going to hire a bunch of wackos and <laughs> decimate the foreign diplomatic corps. And I mean, that's, that's, I guess that's a strategy. It's like, man, I need, I need a, uh, it's cold in here. It's cold in my house. So I'm going to set it on fire and then I'll be warm. That's, that's, that's sort of what well, I got I, out of the last four years. I, I see what you're saying. Uh, I, I wouldn't use the word wacko. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I would say hire people who don't have experience, don't have knowledge in the area, uh, do not have connections in the area. And so they're in what, in that sense, you could argue hire people that are acting blind. Yeah. Uh, that or they don't or, have the ability to do anything. Or hire people that actually, have disdain for the institutions that they're appointed to be our representative for. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's a different take on it. That's uh, internal politics, which he talks about internal politics, how how our our, our allies and our enemies are looking at us and say, how can they how can they say that, that tell us to do anything because they don't they don't even have their house in order yeah well wow. i think that the Go biggest the, the biggest detriment to to anything we do is the the internal conflict in our nation uh because that just just lowers our uh the economic power the military power all that can be undermined with a dissent at home mm-hmm well, we have two more sections. Are we going to get through this today? Should we keep charging? Should we go for it? I don't care. Whatever you want to do. We could, well, you want to come back later? No, let's finish it. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. Under new management, on balance, the Chinese leadership would have preferred to have seen the re-election of Trump in last year's U.S. presidential election. That is not to say that she saw strategic... Oops. Come on value in every element of Trump's foreign policy. He didn't. The CCP found the Trump administration's trade war humiliating, its move toward decoupling worrying, its criticism of China's human rights record insulting, its former formal declaration of China as a strategic competitor as sobering. But most in the CCP's foreign policy establishment view the recent shift in U.S. sentiment towards China as structural, the inevitable byproduct of the changing balance of power between the two countries. In fact, a number have a number have been quietly relieved that open strategic competition has replaced the pretense of bilateral cooperation. With Washington having removed the mask, this thinking goes, China could now move more rapidly, and in some cases openly, toward realizing its strategic goals, while also claiming to be the aggrieved party in the face of U.S. belligerence. But by far the greatest gift that Trump delivered to Beijing was the sheer havoc his presidency unleashed within the United States and between Washington and its allies. China was able to exploit the many cracks that developed between liberal democracies as they tried to navigate Trump's protectionism, climate change denialism, nationalism, and contempt for all forms of multilateralism. During the Trump years, Beijing benefited not because of what it offered the world, but because of what Washington ceased to offer. 
The result was that China achieved victories such as the massive Asia-Pacific free trade deal known as the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership and the EU-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, which will enmesh the Chinese and European economies to a far greater degree than Washington would like. China is wary of the Biden administration's ability to help the United States recover from those self-inflicted wounds. Beijing has seen Washington bounce back from political, economic, and security disasters before. Nonetheless, the CCP remains confident that the inherently divisive nature of U.S. politics will make it impossible for the new administration to solidify support for any coherent China strategy it might devise. Biden intends to prove Beijing wrong in its assessment that the United States is now in irreversible decline. He will seek to use his extensive experience on Capitol Hill to forge a domestic economic strategy to rebuild the foundations of U.S. power in the post-pandemic world. He is also likely to continue to strengthen the capabilities of the U.S. military and to do what it takes to sustain American global technological leadership. He has assembled a team of economic, foreign policy, and national security advisors who are experienced professionals and well-versed in China, in stark contrast to their predecessors who, with a couple of mid-ranking exceptions, had little grasp of China and even less grasp of how to make Washington work. Biden's advisors also understand that in order to restore U.S. power abroad, they must rebuild the U.S. economy at home in ways that will reduce the country's staggering inequality and increase economic opportunities for all Americans. Doing so will help Biden maintain the political leverage he'll need to craft a durable China strategy with bipartisan support. No mean feat when opportunistic opponents such as Pompeo will have ample incentive to disparage any plan he puts forward as little more than appeasement. To lend his strategy credibility, Biden will have to make sure the U.S. military stays several steps ahead of China's increasingly sophisticated array of military capabilities. This task will be made more difficult by intense budgetary constraints, as well as pressure from some factions within the Democratic Party to reduce military spending in order to boost social welfare programs. For Biden's strategy to be seen as credible in Beijing, his administration will need to hold the line on aggregate defense budget and cover increased expenses in the Indo-Pacific region by redirecting military resources away from less pressing theaters, such as Europe. As China becomes richer and stronger, the United States' largest and closest allies will become ever more crucial to Washington. For the first time in many decades, the United States will soon require the combined heft of its allies to maintain an overall balance of power against an adversary. China will keep trying to peel countries away from the United States, such as Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, and the United Kingdom, using a combination of economic carrots and sticks. To prevent China from succeeding, the Biden administration needs to commit itself to fully opening the U.S. economy to its major strategic partners. The United States prides itself on having one of the most open economies in the world, but even before Trump's pivot to protectionism, that was not the case. Washington has long burdened even its closest allies with formidable tariff and non-tariff barriers to trade, investment, capital, technology, and talent. If the United States wishes to remain the center of what until recently was called the free world, then it must create a seamless economy across national boundaries of its major Asian, European, and North American partners and allies. To do so, Biden must 
overcome the protectionist impulses that Trump exploited and build support for new trade agreements anchored in open markets. To allay the fears of a skeptical electorate, he will need to show Americans that such agreements will ultimately lead to lower prices, better wages, more opportunities for U.S. industry, and stronger environmental protections, and assure them that gains won from trade liberalization can help pay for major domestic improvements in education, child care, and health care. The Biden administration will also strive to restore the United States' leadership in multilateral institutions, such as the UN, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Trade Organization. Most of the world will welcome this after four years of watching the Trump administration sabotage much of the machinery of the post-war international order. The, but the damage will not be repaired overnight. The most pressing priorities are fixing the World Trade Organization's broken dispute resolution process, rejoining the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, and increasing the capitalization of both the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to provide credible alternatives to China's Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and its Belt and Road Initiative, and restoring U.S. funding for such critical U.N. agencies. Such institutions have not only been instruments of U.S. soft power since Washington helped create them after the last World War. Their operations also materially affect American hard power in areas such as nuclear proliferation and arms control. Unless Washington steps up to the plate, the institutions of the international system will increasingly become Chinese satrapies. I am not familiar with that word. Driven by Chinese finance, influence, and personnel. Let's just look that up, why don't we? I, I had to look that up. Uh, a satrap, a satrapies, is like a puppet. Ah. A puppet I had to look it up. Yeah, I had to look it up too. Oh, I don't have it. I don't have my screen record on. Satrap. Oh, I, I do. I do. I, I have it here. A province governed by a satrap. Satraps were the governors of province in ancient Median and Archimedean empires. Archimedean. Yeah. The, uh, but it's also, uh, as someone like a puppet, someone who's controlling, mm-hmm. uh, like a, like a, uh, a, uh, I forget, forget what they called it now. Um, uh, I forget. A puppet government but, uh, sounds right, though. A, a puppet government is about right. I'm trying to think of it. A uh, oh, a hedge. Uh, see, uh, someone who's uh, comes in and uh, controls someone. Uh, their their emissary, the ambassador, more than yeah. that. Yeah, it's uh, sort of like Pontius Pilate. <laughs> yeah, some someone. They're I, I'm trying to think of the word hedge. Something. Uh, I'm going to look it up while you talk. Okay. Um, so I think in this last section, we did see this guy. What's this guy's name? Rudd? Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd. We saw his, this is what America should do. And I think there are some good suggestions, but I also think this is where his position shines through. Because I do think that, you know, securing support from allies... And, I mean, it's a vouchsafing Australian security. Um, And, you know, you don't go so far as to say stuff like that, but you're sort of providing a liberal democratic hedge against Chinese sort of dominance in the Pacific, and that helps Australia. So some of his his prescriptions are definitely self-serving, but also it's sort of the way that things have been done. And 
obviously, you know, China may surpass the United States in GDP and raw economic power, but a balance of power can, you know, exist with our traditional partners. And we did miss a moment in these last four years as China sort of strengthened their relations with Europe and the rest of uh, Asia, and we weakened our relations with our allies. That was not a smart move. If we're going to take on China, we shouldn't have started by sort of dissing all of our allies. That was, I, I think that was a bad strategic move. Did you find the word? Henchman. Henchman. <laughs> okay. That, that was a synonym of, Satrapy. of a satrap, a henchman, someone who just does your bidding, you know, like a puppet. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think you're right about about uh, what you were saying, that uh, 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 if we don't have our allies on our side, uh, and I think maybe this next session is saying, or maybe he's, he said it, he kind of alluded to it up here, is that what's going to happen is China's going to come and make agreements with them. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what they did. And so, yeah, uh, yeah, we're strong. We're stronger than any one nation in the country, in the world. But we are not stronger than all the nations in the world. Yeah. And so we have to have our allies. And uh, it would suck to go from the strongest nation in the world to the second strongest nation in the world. And while we did that, we turned our backs on all of our friends so together like we don't we don't have our friends anymore you know mm -hmm. and that's sort of what he's saying and the, well the belt and road initiative they've been talking about the belt and road initiative in foreign affairs for years so there are liberal institutions like the world bank and imf and they draw a lot of scrutiny and scorn for how they choose to manage balance of payments problems, that's the International Monetary Fund, or invest in foreign infrastructure development, that's the World Bank. Um, but developing nations need to meet certain requirements and then the money is doled out. Uh, I, I do think that Trump, I don't know this, I, I'm speaking out of my butt here, but that he probably didn't like those institutions because they literally give money to lower income countries. Um, well, China sort of said, well, we have money. Why don't we sort of uh, loan money to low-income countries and we can become their banker? They don't need to rely on these international institutions. They'll rely on the People's Republic of China. And as a result, we can do infrastructure development in their country. We can build ports that we control. We can um, basically offer them economic enticement for infrastructure development, but extend our footprint uh, commercially all throughout the world. And that was the Belt and Road Initiative. And it makes sense. Why wouldn't China do that? Because these countries are like, oh, we can't get a World Bank loan because we savagely repress our population. And China says, yeah, it sucks because we savagely repress our population too. But you know what you can get? A Belt and Road Initiative loan. <laughs> you want to take one from us? And then we'll have a port, you know, on the uh, uh, East Africa. And... And so, what's the, what's the picture of Belt and Road? What does that mean? Belt and Road. It's just sort of like rebuilding the Silk Road, sort of having this global trade network, the facilities to sort of manage logistically. And so, China's building huge ports all throughout the world. And what does so, Belt have to do with it? It's like I don't know. It's some yeah. chi Chinese thing. I don't know. Okay. Very interesting, David.
Very, very good. I think you're absolutely right. And that that's what Kevin Rudd was saying. Yeah. That's what he was saying here. And I think that's very true. Very true. Very classic that uh, I think the last four years, uh, we've become weaker, not because of our muscle, but because of the ability to use that muscle in the world. Mm-hmm. We, we're not strong enough to beat everybody. It's, it's kind of like uh, of all the sticks, you know, the old thing about you can put a bunch of sticks together and you can't break them. You can break each stick easily, but if you put a bunch together, you can't break them. Uh-huh. Well, if you're, the, if you're the strongest stick, you're stronger than any one of those sticks, but you're not stronger than all the sticks together. Mm-hmm. And you'll break before they will. And I think that's the analogy that that I see, uh, that that we have kept pulling ourselves away from our allies. And so, yeah, we're not any weaker than we were before individually, but we are weaker collectively in the world because other people are aligning with, say, China, for example. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the movie Hoosiers when I was a kid. And uh, Gene Hackman's the coach of the... Hickory Bucks. Is that what they're called? I don't know. I saw the movie a long time ago. Hickory. Hickory Hoosiers, whatever. I'm thinking of how many bucks. Hickory. Um, Yeah, how many bucks? Yay, shut out. (laughs) um, And so they have to face South Bend in the end. And South Bend's the best team in the state. And they want to win the state tournament, even though there's this small town team with, you know, very few players. and, And so... I just remember because it's like the audio in it is like Gene Hackman's voice is all echoey, but they all put their hands in the middle and he's like, I love you guys. And they say, team. And then they go out and they face this formidable opponent. And what the United States has done last year is they gathered the team and they're Gene Hackman and they put their hands in the middle and they says, I hate you guys. <laughs> no team. Let's go face this. Let's go face this formidable opponent after I sort of badmouth you guys and turn my back on you. You, you got to be a team. You know, you it's, it's a simple, yeah. it's a simple analogy, but I love you guys team versus I hate you guys. No team. Um, should we continue this and finish it off real quick? Yep. Let's finish it off. Managed strategic competition. Back to the article. The deeply conflicting nature of U.S. and Chinese strategic objective. Uh, the deeply conflicting nature of U.S. and Chinese strategic objectives and the profoundly competitive nature of the relationship may make conflict and even war seem inevitable. Even if neither country wants that outcome, China will seek to achieve global economic dominance and regional military superiority over the United States without provoking direct conflict with Washington and its allies. Once it achieves superiority, China will then incrementally change its behavior towards other states, especially when their policies conflict with China's ever-changing definition of its core national interests. On top of this, China has already sought to gradually make the multilateral system more obliging of its national interests and values. But a gradual, peaceful transition to an international order that accommodates Chinese leadership now seems far less likely to occur than it did just a few years ago. For all the eccentricities and flaws of the Trump administration, its decision to declare China a strategic competitor, formally end the doctrine of strategic engagement, and launch a trade war with Beijing, succeeded in making clear that Washington was willing to put up a significant fight. And the Biden administration's plan to rebuild 
rebuild the fundamentals of national U.S. power at home, rebuild U.S. alliances abroad, and reject a simplistic return to the earlier forms of strategic engagement with China signals that the contest will continue, albeit tempered by cooperation in a number of defined areas. The question for both Washington and Beijing, then, is whether they can conduct this high level of strategic competition within agreed-on parameters that would reduce the risk of a crisis, conflict, and war. In theory, this is possible. In practice, Yogi Berra, however, the near-complete erosion of trust between the two has radically increased the degree of difficulty. Indeed, many in the United States national security community believe that the CCP has never ha had any compunction about lying or hiding its true intentions in order to deceive its adversaries. In this view, Chinese diplomacy aims to tie opponents' hands and buy time for Beijing's military, security, and intelligence machinery to achieve superiority and establish new facts on the ground, to win broad support from U.S. foreign policy elites. Therefore, any concept of managed strategic competition will need to include a stipulation by both parties to base any new rules of the road on a reciprocal practice of trust but verify. Coffee break. The idea of managed strategic competition is anchored in a deeply realist view of the global order. It accepts that states will continue to seek security by building a balance of power in their favor, while recognizing that in doing so, they are likely to create security dilemmas for other states, whose fundamental interests may be disadvantaged by their actions. The trick in this case is to reduce the risk to both sides as the competition between them unfolds by jointly crafting a limited number of rules of the road that will help prevent war. The rules will enable each side to compete vigorously across all policy and regional domains. But if either side breaches the rules, then all bets are off. And it's back to, the all, back to all the hazardous uncertainties of the law of the jungle. The first step to building such a framework would be to identify a few immediate steps that each side must take in order for a substantive dialogue to proceed and a limited number of hard limits that both sides and U.S. allies must respect. Both sides must abstain, from example, from cyber attacks targeting critical infrastructure. Washington must return to strictly adhering to the one China policy, especially by ending the Trump administration's provocative and unnecessary high-level visits to Taipei. For its part, Beijing must dial back its recent pattern of provocative military exercises, deployments, and maneuvers in the Taiwan Strait. In the South China Sea, Beijing must not reclaim or militarize any more islands and must commit to respecting freedom of navigation and aircraft movement without challenge. For its part, the United States and its allies could then, and only then, reduce a number of operations they carry out in the sea. Similarly, China and Japan could cut back their military deployments in the East China Sea by mutual agreement over time. If both sides could agree on those stipulations, each would have to accept that the other will still try to maximize its advantages while stopping short of breaching the limits. Washington and Beijing would continue to compete for strategic and economic influence across the various regions of the world. They would keep seeking reciprocal access to each other's markets and would still take retaliatory measures when such access was denied. They would still compete in foreign investment markets, technology markets, capital markets, and currency markets. And they would likely carry out a global contest for hearts and minds, with Washington stressing the importance of democracy, open economies, and human rights, and Beijing highlighting its approach to authoritarian capitalism and what it calls the China development model. Even amid escalating competition, however, there will be some room for cooperation in a number of critical areas. 
This occurred even between the United States and the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. It should certainly be possible now between the United States and China when the stakes are not nearly as high. Aside from collaborating on climate change, the two countries could conduct bilateral nuclear arms control negotiations, including on mutual ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and work toward agreement on acceptable military applications of artificial intelligence. They could cooperate on North Korea nuclear disarmament and on preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. They could undertake a series of confidence-building measures across the Indo-Pacific region, such as coordinated disaster response and humanitarian missions. They could work together to improve global financial stability, especially by agreeing to reschedule the debts of developing countries hit hard by the pandemic. And they could jointly build a better system for distributing COVID-19 vaccines in the developing world. That list is far from exhaustive, but the strategic rationale for all the items is the same. It is better for both countries to operate within a joint framework of managed competition than to have no rules at all. This framework would need to be negotiated between a designated and trusted high-level representative of Biden and a Chinese counterpart close to Xi. Only a direct, high-level channel of that source could lead to confidential understandings on the hard limits to be respected by both sides. These two people could also become the points of contact when violations occurred, as they are bound to form, as they are bound to from time to time, and the ones to police the consequences of any such violations. Over time, a minimum level of strategic trust might, alert, uh, might emerge, and maybe both sides would discover that the benefits of continued collaboration on common planetary challenges such as climate change might begin to affect the other, more competitive and even conflictual areas of the relationship. There will be many who criticize this approach as naive. Their responsibility, however, is to come up with something better. Both the United States and China are in search of a formula to manage their relationship for the dangerous decade ahead. The hard truth is that no relationship can ever be managed unless there is a basic agreement between the parties on the terms of that management. I don't like it. <laughs> you don't like what? There should be one guy in charge of Chinese policy close to Biden. And they're the ones that police the agreement. And they're the ones that decide the hard limits of the rules that aren't even written in. It's all very cloak and dagger back room stuff. I don't like it. Yeah. Maybe, th maybe that's how they work in Australia. But buddy, you're in the big leagues now. This is US of A. That's funny you should say that, David, because when I was here, when I when you were reading this and I was uh, listening to this, I'm thinking, it sounds like he's not talking about what's best for the United States or what's best for uh, 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 the world. Uh, I saw elements of what's best for Australia in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, if they could do this, they should do this and this and this. Well, that's going to help Australia quite a bit. Yeah. You know, I, I saw an Australia perspective of the Southern Pacific uh, and doing this and this and this. So, okay, well, I, I kind of saw that. I got the feeling that I don't know foreign foreign affairs foreign policy that much but it kind of seemed that way yeah um should we just finish the article real quick yep game on game on should i try to read this like a sportscaster game uh, on hey okay. 
Game on. What well. would be the measures of success should the United States and China agree on such a joint strategic framework? <laughs> One sign of success would be if by 2030 they have avoided a military crisis or conflict across the Taiwan Strait, or a debilitating cyber attack. A convention banning various forms of robotic warfare would be a clear victory, as robotic warfare, okay, as would the United States and China acting immediately together and with the World Health Organization to combat the next pandemic. Perhaps the most important sign of success however, would be a situation in which both countries competed in an open and vigorous campaign for global support for the ideas, values, and problem-solving approaches that their respective systems offer, with the outcomes still to be determined. Success, of course, has a thousand fathers, but failure is an orphan. But the most demonstrable example of a failed approach to managed strategic composition would be over Taiwan. If she were to calculate that he could call Washington's bluff by unilaterally breaking out of whatever agreement had been privately reached with Washington, the world would find itself in a world of pain. In one fell swoop, such a crisis would rewrite the future of the global order. A few days before Biden's inauguration, Chen Yixin, the Secretary General of the CCP's Central Political and Legal Affairs Commission, stated that the rise of the East and the decline of the West has become a global trend, and changes of the international landscape are in our favor. Chen is a close confidant of Xi and a central figure in China's normally cautious national security apparatus. And so the hubris in his statement is notable. In reality, there's a long way to go in this race. China has multiple domestic vulnerabilities that are rarely noted in the media. The United States, on the other hand, always has its weaknesses on full public display, but has repeatedly demonstrated its capacity for reinvention and restoration. Managed strategic competition would highlight the strengths and test the weaknesses of both great powers, and may the best system win. <laughs> okay, I mean, it was a decent article. I felt, and maybe this is... Okay, you know how you we say where you stand depends on where you sit, and we've been blasting Kevin Rudd for being Mr. Australia, you know? But I would consider myself less of a politician like Kevin Rudd and more of a political scholar because at one point in my life I was a political scholar. I studied politics in, in university. I identify more with the political scholars that write <laughs> than the political leaders, and that might just be me. It's because you got to sort of turn that that introspection or that that examination on yourself. So when something's written by, you know, this is a senior fellow at this institution and they teach, you know, international affairs at Columbia and I read their stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'm on board with that. When it's like this guy was prime minister of Australia, I'm immediately suspicious. Well, well, an academic, uh, an academician will not start spiraling down to the nuts and bolts. You should do this or this. You should do this and this. They're not going to do that mm -hmm. because they they know, because I'm an academician myself, they know that when you start talking about details, they could be spun all different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, they could be positive, negative, positive, negative. And it kind of undermines your your higher level uh, thesis that you're trying to promote. The devil's in the details. Yeah. Well, the devil's in the details. And there is a devil in the details. Because depending on who's looking at the details, uh, they could they could uh, support either side. Uh, okay, so I'm going to take two minutes and I'm going to sum up what I got out of this article. Then you take two minutes and you sum up what you got out of this article. <laughs> and then maybe we should call it for the day. Sounds good. Okay, so let's start a stopwatch. Okay. 
Where's the stopwatch? Where's the stopwatch? Okay. Let me add this. I don't see the stopwatch. Is it going to ding when it's done? I'm trying to get the stopwatch on my screen. It's not working. Okay, screw it. No stopwatch. I'll just do. I'll just do it. Uh, I'll look at it and let you know. Two minutes. Okay. Okay. Here we go, and we're starting now. Okay, this was an article by Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia. Kevin Rudd has some interesting ideas on the future of the U.S.-Chinese relationship. Obviously, he felt like the Trump administration made a lot of mistakes in the last four years. Among those mistakes were turning its back on allies. Not surprisingly, one of those allies would be Australia. And dismantling the foreign diplomatic corps. Uh, also, the trade war, I don't think it was conducted with the utmost professionalism, but he does say engaging in a trade war and stop stop and discontinuing the pretension that China was a cooperative bilateral partner and sort of defining China as a strategic competitor was one of the victories of the Trump administration. Because to confront China in the 21st century, they need to be viewed as a competitor as much as a collaborator, if not more so. So he's saying that Trump didn't do, not everything Trump does is bad. That sort of decision was a good thing. Now, if you look at the broader meat of the article, because the article was called Short of War, the real flashpoint is going to be Taiwan. Taiwan is an island of 25 million people, fully industrialized, fully democratic, and China wants it. Now, they did something similar with Hong Kong in the last few years, where they just sort of took it over and passed these laws. So I think war could occur if Taiwan becomes a point of militaristic intervention. Beyond that, I believe that the United States needs to galvanize, this is what he's saying, galvanize support of its allies and sort of work to address issues with China moving forward on a very strategic, calm, diplomatic basis. Um, if, if Taiwan doesn't overflow, there is a future where both can coexist peacefully and that's going to involve not just the U.S. and China, but the rest of the world as well. That's my two minutes. <laughs> Very good. Okay, I'm going to give you two minutes. I'll give you the one, and I'll give you the half, and I'll give you 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Got it? Okay. Here we go. Two minutes. I, I might I might take less. Okay. I did sum up. Ready? I summed up pretty good, didn't I? It was good. It was very close to two minutes. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Two minutes starting now. Okay. Uh, the article by Kevin Rudd, uh, Short of War, he, I think he did a very good job at uh, his perspective of the situation, the world situation for the past four years and where we are today uh, from the South Pacific view and from Australians view. And my takeaway from the article uh, is less specific and more general. And that is, uh, we really should listen to all the different leaders uh, friends and enemies, uh, how they view things and what they see from their perspective. And then think about how does that uh, support, how does it change, uh, and how does it clarify our perspective from North America continent? Uh, he's from the Australian continent. Uh, how would the Europeans see it? How would the South Americans see it? 
So I think the value in, in his arguments uh, is good at the beginning. At the end, I think it was much more partisan uh, on what he is going to be, uh, what will be beneficial to him or how he sees moving forward for, as an Australian. Uh, less American and less for the world. So I think the article is good in a different view uh, for America and their moving and also for China and their moving together. Uh, I think some of his suggestions were very good. But in, in overall, I think we need to uh, listen to other people uh, and understand what they mean before we go off and start doing things the way we do things without really understanding other people because we have to work in this together. All right, you got it under two minutes, and you worked in the tagline of the podcast into your summary. Because I really believe it. Yes. Now, before we leave, and uh, you'll have to say it again, I'm going to cue the music so we have two minutes to, to sort of wrap this whole thing up. I don't, I mean, it's easy to sort of, if you're not the biggest fan of Trump, to sort of criticize him. But I'm going to say this in all honesty, because I take a more anti-Trump bias than you do in this podcast. Could you imagine Donald Trump sitting down at a word processor and writing an essay as nuanced and balanced as this with an understanding of the strategic forces and material forces at work in these relationships? No. Okay. I was just, I was just asking. Um, but... I- Nobody would sit down and write something exactly like he did. Everyone's going to have their own perspective. But and and Trump's is not as good as others <laughs> as far as positivity is concerned. But there could be other there could be worse. But I feel like if you had like Hillary Clinton to write an essay, it would be well researched and it would understand historical, economic and diplomatic perspectives. I think that Trump's would be a lot of bravado with very little fact if that makes sense. But Absolutely. this isn't about Trump. He had his four years. He did his best. And now it's time for Joe Biden to try his best, right? To sort mm-hmm. of shape the relationship with China, move forward, <laughs> and hopefully we can avoid war, like Kevin Rudd is saying, right? So I think... Well, war with other countries. I mean, we were almost had war with ourselves. <laughs> I know. But we avoided that, too. So you can't change the past, you can only change the future. So I think maybe we should wrap up this episode. We went a little long today, but it was fun. Yes, it was. So do you have anything you'd like to tell the viewers out there in podcast land? Yeah. You know, Sons of Sequoia, we we, uh, sit here and talk. But everybody, everybody should keep on talking. But when you talk, listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye.